بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أفضل المرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين I'm truly overwhelmed ladies and gentlemen by your reception I thank you for it I've just come back from Riyadh and attended the sad occasion of the late Crown Prince's death and I must tell you that for me it was a special relationship that I had with him. He was my mentor. My first job was with him. And throughout his career, he was always an example of humility and diligence. Two qualities that I hope the rest of us will learn and keep. But this is also a happy occasion because the kingdom has a new crown prince, Prince Naif bin Abdaiz. I'm sure all of you have read about him. But when I was in the intelligence department, I worked very closely with His Royal Highness. And I can tell you that the right choice was made. And it was made by the Bay'ah Council, which was established five years ago by King Abdullah to oversee the succession in the kingdom. And in spite of all of the dire predictions of Beltway experts, the council performed exceptionally well. And there was unanimity in his selection when the king nominated him. There may be those of you who, despite Yon Duke's introduction of me, still don't know who I am. And to those, I would say that if you read Roger Cohen of the Washington Post and Mr. Satloff of the Washington Institute and others, I am that humorless, pathetic, irrelevant person. <laughs> But at least Mr. Cohen gave me the distinction of being a skilled diplomat. <laughs> I had thought of preparing a speech as like the one I delivered last year. But really the occasion calls for something off the cuff and something from the heart without much thinking and without much preparation. I agree with Mr. S Mr. Cohen that perhaps I am humorous. But what is there to be humorous about? Particularly when it comes to our part of the world, where we still see long-standing conflict going on, new potential for conflict coming about, and the turmoil and the troubles that several of our neighboring countries have gone through in the past year with bloodshed and killing and civil war. Not much to be humorous about. Nonetheless, that does not give us the excuse not to work and not to try to overcome these challenges. As the people of Libya have shown 
when people put their minds to the task, they can withstand all the challenges and suffer all the sacrifices, and in the end, they achieve victory. I applaud the ambassador of Libya who is here, and through him, the people of Libya. If we go from Libya to Syria, we see a situation where the bloodshed still continues. And in spite of the efforts, whether by individual leaders like the King of Saudi Arabia or the Arab League or the international community, nonetheless, the government of Syria seems to be bent on continuing its merciless and bloody attack on its own people. And if we go to the Yemen, we find similar situation where despite all the efforts that were put in trying to bring peace to that country, particularly by the GCC countries, who devised a transition plan to achieve that peace, yet the bloodshed continues. In Bahrain, ladies and gentlemen, that small island went through a turmoil that it does not deserve. We all know Bahrainis, Shia and Sunnah, Jew and other religions. They are a people of peace and a people of commerce and a people of enlightenment and they don't deserve to go through the troubles that they have. And when Bahrain asked for support from the GCC countries in meeting the challenges of its upheavals, that support was in the form of military units that went there not to quell the demonstrations or to arrest the demonstrators, but rather to protect the infrastructure facilities in that island. Bahrain is not a wealthy country. They don't have oil to sell, so the kingdom provides them with oil that they refine in their refinery and then they sell it on the market. So the refinery is an important and life-giving institution in Bahrain's makeup. And the units that went from Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Qatar went there to protect the refinery, the airport, the seaport, and the commercial center. None of them was involved in any quelling of rioters or demonstrators. And if you take a Google Earth satellite picture from top, you will see that their cantonments are precisely where those installations are. These are very strict orders by the leaders of the GCC to the commanders of the Arabia Shield forces that went in, in, uh, in Bahrain. Remaining in all of this turmoil, of course, and not mentioning Iraq and its, its unresolved and still work in progress developments with a government that is still unrepresentative of all of the people, with clear and apparent interference from Iran. 
with the United States coming to withdraw its forces from, from Iraq. I have maintained, and I still maintain, that there is a need for a United Nations Security Council resolution declaring Iraq's territorial integrity inviolate under Chapter 7. It's a world responsibility, ladies and gentlemen, to protect the territorial integrity of Iraq. And it is the United States' responsibility, ladies and gentlemen, having undertaken that invasion of Iraq, to push that Security Council resolution through and to see that the rest of the world abide by it. This will not only quell any internal centrifugal ambitions within Iraqi society and politics, but also it will hopefully challenge any outside ambitions that may develop on the territorial integrity of Iraq. And if we go from there to the perennial and lamentable and still open wound of Palestine, what do we see there? We see a people who are still occupied, who are still colonized, whose territory is still being stolen day by day by an occupation force that defies all of the United Nations resolutions and international law. And without account to anybody, when this administration in the United States made a stand on settlement building in Israel, the result was that Israel defied the United States and not only continued to increase the settlements, but also to challenge the leadership of the United States in trying to achieve peace between the Israelis and their neighbors. Have any of you seen the movie The Mouse That Roared of the 1960s with Peter Sellers portraying the Duchess and the other characters of that small duchy in Europe that finally, I think, if I remember the movie correctly, decides having seen how World War II went and the United States coming to the rescue of, of Europe after its devastation, deciding that they will have to declare war on the United States so that the United States can come and develop them. It's a humorous and funny movie and I remember when I was watching it in those days laughing because Peter Sellers was such a wonderful actor and the whole idea of invading the United States in order for it to come back and fix things was so humorous. But is it so humorous anymore how we see Israel is treating the United States and the leadership of the United States? It's an incredible and totally phantasmagoric situation. When I was watching Mr. Netanyahu lecturing Mr. Obama in the Oval Office, 
on what Israel will or will not do. I was flabbergasted by the audacity of the man. Is that acceptable, ladies and gentlemen? Is it conceivable that this country, where, and I brought this book with me, it's not Mao's red book, by the way. <laughs> but it is a book about the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And I will read to you a sentence penned by that most marvelous of leaders, unique in his time, and I think in all time, Mr. Thomas Jefferson, who said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is your legacy, ladies and gentlemen. You Americans put that for the rest of us in the world, not only to admire, but hopefully to emulate. I can't understand why that cannot be applied to the Palestinian people. How can we see the United States standing in the face of the Palestinians when they want to declare their state in the most reasonable and the most legitimate and unalienable right that they have like any other state. And the U.S. says it will veto that. That is unacceptable, ladies and gentlemen. You as Americans cannot accept that. And we as Arabs will not accept that. And this is where my contention that America's vetoing of the statehood for Palestine not only will it affect the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States, but also with the rest of the world, and not just the Muslim world. It is the whole global community that accepts Palestine as a state, and only the U.S. that objects to that. This, ladies and gentlemen, is something that only Americans can fix. But what I can say is that all of us in the Arab world, and I include myself in this, truly want the Americans to fix this because of our friendship for you and because of such wonderful words like Mr. Jefferson left to humanity. And if I were to quote other words by other leaders in America, 
there will be volumes and volumes of eloquence and rhetorical exuberance that we have always held high in esteem and in respect. This Council is one of the instruments and one of the institutions that works to overturn what is definitely an unjust position by your country. And I see faces of others who are equally committed to that principle of overturning the unjustness of your political position on Palestine. I wish you success. And I tell you that as a, a Saudi who spent perhaps his misspent youth in, in your country, <laughs> other than Georgetown, of course, <laughs> I still expect from the United States the right thing to do. Thank you very much. Thank you.